This episode features discussions of illness and injury that some may find graphic. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. July 11, 1997. It was a Friday night, and 22-year-old Lee Harding wanted chicken tacos after a long day at work. The Mexican restaurant in Pueblo, Colorado, seemed like a good bet. But sadly, the tacos were disappointing. Lee thought the chicken tasted strange and slimy. About an hour after eating, Lee's evening got worse when he started experiencing terrible abdominal pain. He waited out the weekend, hoping it would subside. But it didn't. By Monday, he began to have bloody diarrhea. According to the book Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser, Lee checked in at the emergency room. The doctors took a stool sample, ran some tests, and diagnosed him with what was probably just a bad flu bug while they waited for the results. They sent him home with some antibiotics and told him to stay hydrated. The next day, an official from the Pueblo Health Department showed up at Lee's front door with alarming news. Lee had E. coli, a potentially lethal foodborne bacteria. But that wasn't all. Ten other people across the region were sick with E. coli, too. Lee immediately thought about the tacos. He told the health department about the bad chicken, certain that was what had caused his illness. The health department might have agreed. Except Lee's strain of E. coli wasn't found in chicken. It was found in beef. By the time the health department figured out which food product was tainted, Nearly 25 million pounds of contaminated beef had been eaten. There was far more at work here than an undercooked taco. The E. coli outbreak was the result of a decade's worth of loose regulations, nefarious marketing, and supersized corporate greed. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This season, we're covering the dark side of the 1990s. Last week, we learned about the British royal family's Annus Horribilis in 1992 and the tragedies that dogged them throughout the 90s, including Princess Diana's devastating death. This week, we're returning across the Atlantic to examine a very different phenomenon that nevertheless defined the 90s, the shifting American diet. All those Happy Meal toys may have been fun, but corporate America was cloaking plenty of deadly secrets under the guise of that big McDonald's smile. We'll dive into the dark side of 1990s food right after this. By the mid-1990s, the American economy was booming. Jobs were plentiful, and Americans were working hard. They had money in their pockets to spend at their leisure. Americans also wanted more time for leisure. Who wanted to waste precious hours on boring things like cooking? They could afford to pay someone else to cook, but then going out to restaurants could suck up just as much time as cooking. 
Luckily, fast food chains had been expanding since the 50s, and the drive-thru was there to solve all their problems. Or at least, that's what the restaurants claimed, by specifically targeting American children with an onslaught of advertising. According to Kelly Brownell of the World Food Policy Center, the average American child in this era saw nearly 10,000 food advertisements on television each year. The kids were the one who passed on the message to their parents, we must go out to Burger King. Fast food companies didn't come up with the brilliant strategy of marketing to children all on their own. They were inspired by another industry, and not one they wanted to be publicly associated with, big tobacco. John F. Banshaft III, law professor at George Washington University, described that inspiration in Morgan Spurlock's documentary, Super Size Me. In a secret study by one of the tobacco companies that had the ominous title of something like Brand Imprinting for Later Actuation in Life, they would buy the little toy cigarettes and they'd start play-smoking them at four or five or six and wouldn't even notice the pack. But the theory was, when they get to the age when they're smoking, without even realizing it, they're going for the pack that they recognize because it had those nice feelings for them when they were little kids. Fast food companies picked up the gauntlet from Big Tobacco, using fun characters and playful advertisements to imprint their brand on the minds of America's children. According to Fast Food Nation, 96% of school kids could recognize Ronald McDonald in this era. The only figure more recognizable to them was Santa Claus. And parents, keen to save time on cooking and keep their kids happy, embraced fast food as a result. It didn't take long for other segments of the American food industry to follow this lead. Because fast food restaurants also sold soda with meals, it was easy for the beverage industry to adopt the same advertising strategy. Adult consumption of soda had stagnated. Adults knew what soda they liked, and drank it as much or as little as they always had. But kids were still learning what flavors they liked. Eight-year-olds were considered the perfect target. They had an average of 65 years of buying power in front of them. A 1999 issue of Beverage Industry put it bluntly, saying, Influencing elementary school students is very important to soft drink marketers because children are still establishing their tastes and habits. There's something ominous about exploiting the subconscious minds of children for profit. After all, children can't discern the difference between what's good for them and what's bad but dangerously fun. And fast food was aggressively investing in fun. The fun quotient reached new heights when McDonald's dug deeper into Big Tobacco's old playbook. They moved from child-focused advertising to pairing their food with actual toys. In the mid-1990s, they obtained exclusive rights to include Disney-themed toys in Happy Meals. Then, in 1997, there were the Teeny Beanie Babies. Brand Week writer Rod Taylor called McDonald's Teeny Beanie Babies the most successful toy giveaway in United States advertising history. McDonald's included an exclusive series of the tiny toys with every Happy Meal throughout April 1997. 
The company was already selling 10 million Happy Meals a week in the United States, but this toy brought 10 times the number of sales as usual. And the benefits didn't stop there. Kids now associated toys with food and food with fun. Even as they grew older, they'd be back for more. That was all the fast food industry wanted, whatever the cost for the kids. And the cost for the kids was becoming increasingly obvious. By the end of the decade, American children were eating more fast food than at any point in history. In 1996, nearly 20% of their calories came from fast food and restaurants. Meanwhile, the number of overweight and obese people in the U.S. nearly doubled over the decade. The sugars, fats, and processed chemicals in fast food caused massive fat gain in young bodies. But weight gain itself wasn't the problem. There were health issues associated with that weight gain. Children were being diagnosed with diabetes at higher rates than ever before. And according to the documentary Super Size Me, if diabetes onset is before the age of 14 or 15, a person can lose between 17 and 27 years off their life. By targeting children, the food industry was trading record profits for years of their future customers' lives. To make the situation even more dire, schools were often complicit in the marketing schemes. Subway and Taco Bell offered school lunches. Pizza Hut sponsored a program called Book It, which paired pizza consumption with reading achievements. Parents loved the program because kids were reading. Kids loved it because they got pizza. Nobody stopped to question the psychological impact of the pairing, much less to recognize the increase in childhood obesity. This was on purpose. Few Americans noticed the slow growth of the obesity epidemic, not just because it was cloaked with an aggressive veneer of fun, but also because the industry was paying to make sure nobody noticed. Fast food companies had gone to Washington to neutralize the primary defender of American food quality, the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA was responsible for vetting any products that Americans ingested, from food and beverages to headache pills. And at the outset of the 90s, the FDA had accomplished a huge goal in the fight for American health, mandatory nutrition facts. In 1990, the Nutrition Labeling Act ensured that food manufacturers would list the nutritional information and ingredients for their products. The little black box with names and percentages became the standard. But as the decade progressed, the drug section of the Food and Drug Administration took the lion's share of the funding for the agency. Which was exactly what fast food companies had paid for. An army of food industry lobbyists swarmed the Capitol throughout the decade, working tirelessly to make sure that fast food and food manufacturers were left alone by government agencies. As shown in the documentary Super Size Me, lobbyists supported election campaigns of Congress members and pushed for repeals of FDA regulations. As the government grew complicit, private citizens turned to litigation. John Banshaf brought forward one of the first fast food lawsuits against McDonald's. The plaintiffs were two girls, both obese teenagers, who said the constant advertising of McDonald's food had led to their health issues. 
the McDonald's legal defense was simple. Nobody was forced to eat their product. According to the trial transcript, McDonald's said it was a matter of common knowledge that any processing that foods undergo served to make them more harmful than unprocessed foods. Yet they had allegedly paid millions of dollars to lobbyists to make sure that it wasn't common knowledge, millions to advertisers to reach as many children as possible, and millions more to lure kids into their restaurants with toys and playgrounds. Still, McDonald's won. In the early 2000s, the case was dismissed by a federal judge. Fast food companies were raking in billions of dollars a year, thanks to pervasive marketing, and now the nation had a new problem. With more sales, the restaurants needed more food to sell. That meant overhauling America's food supply, even if it meant destroying jobs and risking lives. Coming up, the American food supply struggles to keep up with demand. Now back to the story. For thousands of years, Producing food was a grueling but straightforward process. Plant a crop or feed livestock, harvest and slaughter, then cook and eat. But few Americans had vegetable gardens or chicken coops by the 1990s. And the explosion of fast food dining that had begun decades earlier was finally peaking. To meet the demand, the industry needed more food faster. That meant the supply chain had to change. Nothing exemplified this problem better than the quintessential American meal, the hamburger and french fries. According to Fast Food Nation, in 1960, the average American ate about four pounds of french fries a year. By the end of the 1990s, Americans were eating over 30 pounds of fries a year, almost exclusively from fast food restaurants. French fries became the most sold restaurant food in the United States. To sell all those fries, the fast food industry needed potatoes. By the late 90s, about a third of all potatoes in the United States were grown in Idaho. So most French fries would more accurately be called Idaho fries. Before they became fries, though, those potatoes are harvested by giant red machines that resemble a tractor, fire truck, and snowblower all in one. They are known as spudniks, and each one can harvest several hundred tons of potatoes weekly. Once the potatoes are out of the ground, nearly 60% of them are shipped to a French fry processing plant. It looks like an oil refinery with huge pipes and catwalks several stories high. The potatoes are rolled through a conveyor belt that lets dirt and rocks fall through, and the spuds are mechanically sorted and washed. The wet potatoes drop into a steam machine, which blasts them with super hot steam for a little over 10 seconds. This boils the water under the skins and literally explodes them off of the potato. Then, the spuds are shot through the water gun knife. Yep. You heard that correctly. The water gun knife. It's like a fire hose shooting potatoes through a screen of blades that cut them into perfect French fries. But sometimes the fries aren't perfect. So another machine, remember the potatoes haven't been touched by a human yet. 
scans each french fry on a conveyor belt like an airport security line. If the machine finds an imperfect french fry, it shoots a tiny puff of air to knock the ugly fry off the line. The perfect french fries are then dropped into a series of robotic machines that cook, freeze, and package them into six-pound batches. One plant can spit out over a million pounds of fries a day. It's a fascinating process, but you'll notice that the truck drivers hauling the bagged fries are the only human in the process until they get to the restaurant. For all those billions of pounds of fries being made in the 1990s, there were fewer jobs in food manufacturing than ever. Increased automation had made human labor nearly obsolete. And it wasn't just potatoes. Industrial bakeries mechanically rolled and baked cookies, cakes, and breads. Dairy machines fed and milked cows, then pasteurized and bottled the milk automatically. It seemed like anything that could be automated was now done by a machine. After all, machines were the only things tireless enough to keep up with the fast food industry's determination to sell more and more and more of the deadly products they were peddling. Except when it came to making America's favorite sandwich, the hamburger. Where automation killed jobs, meatpacking would kill people. The modern slaughterhouse also resembles a factory. But here, there's only a disassembly line. Back in the early 20th century, meatpacking plants could slaughter and dress 50 cattle an hour. By 1980, a plant could handle 175 cattle an hour. But with overwhelming demand for fast food meat increasing, by 1999, slaughterhouses were capable of handling nearly 400 cows an hour. That's six full cows a minute. And while automation had transformed potato processing, meatpacking was still done almost exclusively by hand. In an industry where a sharp blade is the primary tool, going as fast as humanly possible was bound to lead to injuries. And it did. Throughout the 1990s, and even to this day, meatpacking has been one of the most dangerous jobs in the country. But the injuries extended past the slaughterhouse itself and into the public sphere. The exponential increase in meat production meant there were lapses in quality control. Meat from a single source could end up in hamburgers across the country, which meant diseased meat would affect more food over a wider area. Lee Harding's chicken tacos weren't the culprit for his E. coli. It was a pack of frozen hamburgers. However, it took a widespread investigation and over a dozen sick people before the common link was discovered. The beef had been pushed out to market so quickly and widely that it took even more time to trace. And by then, much of the meat had already been consumed. This wasn't a one-off occurrence. In January 1993, hospitals in Seattle reported a high number of children being admitted with E. coli. The cases were traced to a jack-in-the-box restaurant. The company quickly recalled the meat shipment that had made the children sick, but it was too late. By the time the contaminated hamburger meat had been traced and recalled, 700 people in four different states were sick. Most were children, and four of the victims died. 
but the demand for Jack in the Box didn't. If the burgers and fries taste good, nobody stops to question what's in them. The fast food industry knew that, so they invested in technology that made their products taste better than ever. Though artificial flavors first appeared back in the mid-1800s, by the 1990s, factory-made flavors were a billion-dollar industry, most of which were created somewhere you might not expect, New Jersey. The New Jersey Turnpike is the highway to America's flavor town, where the headquarters and labs of over half a dozen flavor companies all stand within a few miles of each other. These labs are responsible for the taste of most processed food in America, and they are more secure than most bank vaults. The flavor industry keeps the secret to every special sauce and homemade recipe. The formulas for specific products, like Coke or Pepsi, are closely guarded. Many of the flavor companies can't even say which fast food chains are their clients because the chains don't want their customers to know that the taste of the hamburger they know and love came from a lab. If you look at the ingredient list for any product in America, the vast majority will contain natural or artificial flavors. These terms both designate chemical compounds developed in a laboratory. The difference is how the chemical is produced. Take almond, for example. The taste of almond extract comes from a chemical called benzaldehyde. Benzaldehyde can be derived naturally from peaches and apricots. But those natural sources contain traces of cyanide, too. Cyanide, even in tiny amounts, is toxic. But if benzaldehyde is artificially made by mixing chemicals, there's no cyanide, and it's safe to use for flavor. Either way, the flavor we call almond, unless it's in an actual almond, comes from a laboratory, and there's nothing natural about it. To keep this disconcerting fact out of the minds of the public, who might otherwise reach for a real almond, food processing companies use lobbyists to make sure they didn't have to reveal any of the specific chemicals they were working with. All they had to specify was whether the flavors were artificial or quote-unquote natural. Specifically, they had their lobbyists support the GRAS, or GRAS, certification. This means generally regarded as safe. It is the classification the FDA gives to all chemicals and ingredients it considers edible. If the ingredient isn't on their list, the lab must prove the ingredient is harmless before using it. But it still doesn't have to reveal the chemical formula to anyone but the FDA. Throughout the 1990s, much of America's food was made by machines, flavored by laboratories, and kept behind a safe shield of fun and mystery by lobbyists. So, blissfully ignorant Americans were eating more of it than ever before. At the same time, obesity rates were climbing at a record pace. By the end of the decade, over 60% of Americans were obese or overweight. The former Surgeon General, Dr. David Satcher, even said, left unabated, overweight and obesity may soon cause as much preventable disease and death as cigarette smoking. But America had bought into the fast food industry's delicious myth-making 
wholesale. People didn't want to listen to the Surgeon General when they could listen to McDonald's, or rather, their happy children spreading Mickey D's message. And ever optimistic, Americans believed that if they were getting fat fast, then there had to be a way to get thin fast, too. Coming up, new weight loss solutions emerge, but they only make things worse. Now, back to the story. In 1988, Oprah Winfrey wheeled a little red wagon out in front of her audience and TV cameras. In the wagon were 67 pounds of animal fat, the amount Oprah had lost that year on a liquid protein diet. She was confident, thin, and a new convert to dieting. The fat wagon episode became one of the highest rated in Oprah's career, and the visceral image of fat helped launch the next decade of diet fads. Dieting wasn't anything new in America. Each decade since at least the 1950s had experienced a new wave of diet techniques. In the 60s, it was diet pills, which were simply low-grade amphetamines. In the early 70s, the grapefruit diet took America by storm. For the next 15 to 20 years, Americans rode a wave of diet cookbooks, weight loss subscription programs, and celebrity-endorsed techniques, including Oprah's liquid protein plan. By the outset of the 1990s, the dieting trend was all about low-fat food. The human body breaks down food into four macromolecules, fat, protein, carbohydrates, and nucleic acids. Each one of the molecules serves a purpose in the body, but in the 90s, it was fat that seemed to be piling up in American bodies like never before. So at the dawn of the 1990s, the solution seemed simple. Remove as much fat as possible from food. Low-fat diets had already been a trend in the 1970s, but this time, it was different. The food manufacturers developed new processes to extract fat from snacks and cookies. Fast food restaurants adopted new low-fat techniques for cooking. French fries were even cooked in vegetable oil instead of beef tallow. But there was a dirty little secret hiding in all the low-fat processed food. Sugar. Food manufacturers found that taking the fat out of foods simply made them less tasty, no matter how many flavor chemicals they added. They had to replace the fat with something, and often, that was sugar. Diet guru and cardiologist Dean Ornish explained the problem. I had a patient once who was starting to gain weight on a so-called low-fat diet, and I said, what are you eating? They said, oh, I'm eating just one or two a day. I said, one or two pieces of these low-fat cakes? No, one or two cakes at a sitting, they said. Well, it's low-fat, why not? It can't be bad for me. But it was high in sugar. This mentality was, in part, a result of the marketing we explored earlier. Snackwell cookies, Entenmann cakes, and Wow brand snack chips were all low-fat and sold as healthy alternatives to other desserts and snacks. Jean Goldberg, a nutrition researcher, said, If you take out fat, you gotta put something in. That something, surprise, surprise, has calories. While the fat content was reduced, the sugar kept the calorie count of many foods the same or even increased it. 
and those calories, regardless of where they came from, were leading to fat gain. Plus, the sugar Americans were ingesting wasn't simply the white, sweet granules that we keep in our kitchen cupboards. Usually, they were complex chemical additives. High fructose corn syrup, glucose, sucrose, and aspartame are all other names for the same sweet substance. And some of these additives have terrible side effects. One additive, a chemical called Olestra, was a popular fat substitute in potato chips in the 90s. Using Olestra allowed advertisers to market chips as nearly zero fat, zero calorie, and zero cholesterol. They were a dieter's dream snack. But Olestra also blocked the body's processes to absorb certain nutrients from food, which left many dieters feeling weak and malnourished. On top of that sick feeling from a lack of nutrients, Alestra caused cramps, flatulence, and loose stool. But the low-fat craze wasn't the only diet to sweep America in the 90s. There were a number of others, notably the Atkins diet. Cardiologist Robert Atkins debuted his diet plan in a 1992 book. Like the low-fat crowd, he also focused on the idea of the four nutrients the body extracts from food. But Atkins claimed that the one to eliminate was carbohydrates, not fat. The Atkins diet focused on high-protein, high-fat foods and eliminated all carbohydrates. Bread, fruit, cookies, white flour, and rice. Anything with carbs was a no-go for Atkins adherents. But the plan for weight loss often had the opposite effect. If a person didn't strictly follow the Atkins method or went off the diet for a few days, they actually gained weight. Restricting the intake of all carbohydrates puts the body into ketosis, a state which breaks down stored fat for energy, but can cause fatigue, nausea, and headaches. When carbohydrates are consumed again and ketosis stops, the dieter may gain the weight back. But the massive marketing campaign for Atkins never revealed any of these side effects. It only encouraged dieters to buy more Atkins-friendly products and above all else, stay on the diet. For many dieters, this was like whiplash. First, they were supposed to cut out fat, and now carbohydrates? It was hard to tell if any foods were good to eat anymore. So some dieters didn't worry about food intake at all. Shortly after Atkins' book was published, dieters were introduced to a simple alternative, a little white and blue pill. The Fenfen pill, short for fenfluramine and fentermine, was a miracle product released after a 1992 study that promised immediate weight loss. And it worked. A combination of an appetite suppressant and an amphetamine, Fenfen blocked hunger pangs and dieters found themselves skipping meals without hesitation. Who needed food when you had a pill? For several years, Fenfen dominated the diet craze marketing, especially among women. But in 1997, the FDA declared Fenfen pills unsafe and thus illegal to advertise and sell. Studies of Fenfen dieters had shown that in only a few short years, they had developed issues with their heart valves. To make matters worse, even after abandoning the pills, Researchers found that the cardiovascular damage in Fenfen dieters may continue for years afterward. Luckily, 
Another diet plan was there to pick up where the pills had left off. The Zone Diet, created in 1995, claimed to have found the perfect percentage of fat, carb, and protein intake for a healthy diet. All a dieter had to do was buy the book and follow the formula calculations with every meal. Celebrity spokespeople like Jennifer Aniston touted the Zone Diet as the long-awaited solution to America's growing obesity. Competing with the Zone Diet was the Blood Type Diet, a 1996 book that featured a customized diet plan based on blood type. There was no scientific evidence to show that blood type affected weight loss, but the book flew off the shelves anyway. The pattern kept repeating. By the end of the 90s, dozens of books claimed to have the sure-fire plan for weight loss. But America was fatter than ever. By the year 2000, 60% of Americans were overweight. Diabetes in adolescents rose 70% over the decade. Gene Goldberg, the nutrition researcher, looked at the failure of diets and realized there was another problem in America, and it wasn't the food itself. She said that moderation is a concept that Americans have a really hard time with. If we could eat two cookies and move on, we'd need a lot less of what I call this jiggering with the food supply. But we don't. We want to eat a lot of things and a lot of what we eat. While America was busy trying to find a weight loss diet, nobody noticed the most insidious food issue of the 1990s, supersizing. McDonald's had introduced the supersize in 1992. Wendy's soon followed with the great biggie size. By the end of the decade, nearly every fast food restaurant had increased their portion size options. The supersize of those perfect French fries contained over 600 calories. The biggie soda at Wendy's was 32 ounces, which means over 80 grams of sugar. Its great biggie was 42 ounces. But supply was simply following demand. In 1998, Americans consumed an average of 58 gallons of soda a year. That's over 600 standard 12-ounce cans over the year, or almost two cans a day. As soda sizes increased in the 90s, car manufacturers had to change the size of their cup holders. Even then, most cup holders couldn't fit a 7-Eleven double gulp which contained a half gallon of soda. This pattern revealed the darkest truth of all. Americans wanted the food they were consuming in the biggest portions possible. It seems that food advertisers had succeeded more than they ever could have anticipated. Companies had always cared about profits more than people. Their products from cigarettes to soda were simply opportunities for cash. But unlike cigarettes, which were already regulated due to health concerns, food was seen as a benign fact of life. People had to eat, so why not enjoy the food? This artificially made food was costing Americans more than money or time. It was costing years of their lives. But because it felt good to eat it, many Americans couldn't bring themselves to care. After all, there was always a diet option. To this day, Americans spend almost a trillion dollars a year on fast food. Trillion, with a T. And the CDC recently reported that nearly 37% of Americans eat at fast food joints every day. 
The 1990s were the decade when food consumption became not only a primary facet of the American economy, but a defining trait of American identity. And cuisine was hardly the only part of the American identity that was having a crisis in the 90s. Next week, we're diving into the fraught race relations of the decade and the national upheaval after Rodney King's brutal beating at the hands of police. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>